Released in 1960, this horror thriller directed by Alfred Hitchcock and starring Anthony Perkins, Janet Leigh, Vera Mills, and John Gavin, just to name a few, changed the way we watch movies in theaters forever. It had a lower budget than his previous hit, North by Northwest, was filmed all in black and white, and has now been deemed by the Library of Congress as culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. It was nominated for four Oscars, including Best Supporting Actress for Lee and Best Director for Hitchcock. Since Hitchcock's death in 1980, Universal Productions have spawned three sequels to this film, a remake that starred Vince Vaughn, and a prequel TV show, Bates Motel. Today on You've Never Seen It, we're talking Psycho. Welcome to You've Never Seen It, an audio podcast where I'm on a mission to never hear these four words again. I'm your host, Allison Salamone, and joining me today is one half of Ember Productions and Tony Award winner, Maxwell Haddad. Hi, Maxwell. Hi, Allison. How are you today? I'm doing so good. I'm so glad I got your last name right with like the pronunciation on the first try and didn't have to go and redo this whole intro 14 times like I've had with other people. <laughs> There's honestly even a point of contention amongst myself and my sisters as to how we prefer to pronounce it. So whatever comes out is fine. <laughs> There's worse things that people have called me than Salamone. So I'll take it sometimes. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I, I always want to add an E. I always want to be like Salamone. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Salamone. It is. That's exactly what it is. That's why I tell everyone yeah. it's, it's Salamone like alimony. And then people right. tend to get it. I always want to just, even before we even get into the movie talk, I've, I don't know if I've ever told you the story. Growing up, my last name was Mitchell. Like that was, that's my maiden name. And I always, <laughs> shocker, love attention. And so I always wanted to be <laughs> one of those people who like the teacher couldn't pronounce their last name and you had to like, you know, remind them or like, you know, th- just that little thing. And then I married someone where no one can pronounce the last name right. And I'm like, this is fucking stupid. This is the dumbest attention seeking thing all I've I, never all, won. All I, all I can say is be careful what you wish for. Right? That's literally the epitome God, of... I just wish that my name were harder to pronounce and then you have a name with all consonants and no vowels and yeah. it's like, you don't know what to do. <laughs> or yours, which is almost all vowels and no consonants. Right, right. With just an E at the end and everyone's like, yeah. is it silent? Is it, what is it? Is it a hearty? Is it silent? Is it... What, what is Anyways. that? <laughs> well, welcome. I'm so excited to have you. Uh, this week, we're talking Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 Psycho. And this was one of the first ones you said you wanted to do. You were so excited about it. So even before getting into that, I want to get a little background on you and your love for movies and where that came from and what film means to you. Oh, goodness. Um, okay. Well, I went to film school um, for starters. I spent four years studying the ins and outs of both you know, like cinema history, cinema studies, as well as video production. Um, and I actually took an elective exclusively on Hitchcock. So we dove deep into all of his films. I think it's a cliche, but Hitchcock is one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Oh, for sure. You know, whether or not he was abusive on set is probably the case and worthy of discussion as so many 
filmmakers of his ilk, Kubrick, et cetera, have these reputations for running such a tight ship that it crosses the line from just being a boss. But in terms of his output, if you look at his pre-Hollywood stuff in England all the way through to the ends of his career, he had far more hits than misses. And he was really one of the first filmmakers I latched onto in a way that said to me, oh, there's more to movies than just something you do on a Friday night with your friends when you're bored. You know, movies aren't just schlock, mm-hmm. silly entertainment that so a lot of people always will treat them as, and particularly as a kid, um, you're prone to think. Um, there were a couple movies that had a big influence on me, but the reason why Hitchcock always stood out um is because at universal studios orlando when it first opened all the way through till 2003 they had an exhibit um that was called alfred hitchcock the art of making movies this was an opening day exhibit and it really was one of the first times i remember sort of like the shroud that exists for some people in the filmmaking process was lifted Mm -hmm. for me Okay. And, I, and I got to see behind the scenes of how they set up the cameras, how they do certain tricks, how, you know, in-camera effects, how they do blood, all this sort of stuff. And I was really young, way too young to be watching this exhibit because there was a particular sequence where they recreated the shower scene from right. Psycho, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And it was startling, but I, I was probably like six or seven, maybe younger. I don't know exactly when seeing this. And it didn't necessarily make an impact on me at the time, but I remember when I got a little bit older and really started to dive into film, I reflected back and made sure that I got my family to take me back to Universal to see this. And this is back when Universal was actually about the process of movie making. Don't get me wrong. I still love Universal Studios. I have an annual pass. I go all the time. I think they're an amazing park. But it legitimately, when it first opened, for at least its first decade to, to 15 years, was about the movie making mm-hmm. process. And I think that's partly because now with YouTube and cable TV, that the process of making movies isn't as much of a secret as it used to be. I mean, now you could click on on your phone, on your tablet, on your computer and see right. how things are And with how easily. much things are like digital or CGI now, or that's why one of my favorite things at Universal still is is the, is the, the uh, horror makeup show. Which yeah. it's so cheesy and it's and they're funny, but it's talking about practical effects and it's just something you don't see a whole lot anymore. And when you do, it's it to me it's it's super special. Like as dumb as every as most Michael Bay movies are, Ambulance was all pretty much all practical effects with his explosions. It was pure Michael Bay perfection with all the cheesiness and I loved it. I really think you can tell the difference, even Mm -hmm. if, you know, general audience member doesn't necessarily automatically know why it feels different. I think our brains still process digital information versus something that was actually done and captured on film or digital differently. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at what you said, ambulance. I didn't like it, but I did like that it was practical. Right. Compared to, I don't know, certain other movies where it's all CGI and there's no practical and you can tell. And sometimes you can't, you know, you can't make certain things happen without computers. Sure, sure. But but if you look back at Hitchcock, for example, if you look back through his career, he was an innovator. Mm-hmm. I mean, so much of what now is just secondhand to, to filmmakers, even 
student filmmakers or just, you know, a hobbyist who picks up their iPhone and makes a short film. These techniques that now we know, like the back of our hands, he was creating them on the fly. Yeah. One of my favorite little things that I think everyone always learns when you learn about Psycho is the one thing that comes to mind immediately is that he used chocolate syrup instead of the fake blood because it didn't look real. And so he found something else. It was black and white anyway, so no one was going to be able to tell what the color was, but it looked more real, which is still like when I watched it and that scene happened and I saw it and I remember, because I remember watching it with, like you said, the, the Universal exhibit that was there, but then kind of really watching and actually appreciating it now for what yeah. it is and appreciating film outside of being a casual movie watcher now, it was just like, yeah. Like that, it it looks like blood would look in a shower. <laughs> I I took a in film school. I took a special effects makeup class, and blood. One of the hardest things with blood is getting sort of the texture and viscosity right. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing black and white like Psycho did for so many reasons, um, chocolate syrup, like you said, it looks great. It looks like blood. It look it has the right texture. It has the right feel. The way it spreads and moves is more mm -hmm. blood like not that i necessarily have seen tons and tons of real blood in my life but i've seen enough and had enough you know injuries or dealt with other people's injuries to know that sometimes in movies blood is the right color and the wrong texture or the right texture mm -hmm. and the wrong color so if you shoot it in black and white use hershey's syrup and you're good to go exactly that's what i learned that's my takeaway from it um so i kind of think what's going into that is is we talked about film and then hitchcock in general that's kind of what is it about Psycho and why why this movie? There, there are so many things I could talk about Psycho, notably its impact on cinema history and horror and slasher films, and we can get all into that. But on its most basic, purest form, this is just a great movie. It is thrilling, visceral, mm -hmm. surprising. As good and accomplished as, as any movie that comes out these days, it was shot on a shoestring budget, he used mostly the crew and the soundstage from his TV show because none of the studios he worked with wanted to give him enough of a budget to make this movie. Because, you know, at the time, the, the the content of this movie was just stuff that you weren't seeing in movies, particularly Hollywood movies. It was really groundbreaking. But the fact that it is held up so well and plays as good as, as any modern movie that are using all these tricks and computers and all this stuff, it's just... I don't want to be one of those people who's like, they don't make them like they used to. But they don't in, in, in some but cases. But they don't. And, and, you know, and that's partly because the technology mm -hmm. has shifted. But I also think you see a lot of cases where because the technology has shifted and because attention spans have shifted, filmmakers use those things as a crutch. Yeah. And Hitchcock, even in a movie that really, you know, compared to some of his other stuff, it's more populist. It's a little sillier. Even he said, he has this great quote where he's like, you know, you have to remember that Psycho is a film made with quite a sense of amusement on my part. To me, it's a fun picture. The process through which we take the audience, it's rather like taking them through the haunted house at the fairground or the roller coaster. And then he goes on and on. And so this movie, what it makes me feel is akin to what Jaws makes me feel or what Jurassic Park makes me feel or you know, maybe to a slightly lesser extent, some of the better MCU movies make me feel. The fact that this has such great impact as cinema, but it's also just a damn fun thrill ride is why I keep coming back to it and why it's one of my favorites. Oh, for sure. 
And I mean, I obviously, I knew going into it, I knew the spoiler of who uh, was Norman Bates's mother. Like, I knew that part of it. I knew it was right. him and the, with the whole split personality. What I didn't know and what actually made me go, huh, was when uh, Lila turns the chair around and it's the body. That part, by the way, we're full spoilers. I, I feel like I say this every time. Full spoilers. It's fine. But when the body turns around, like, I was expecting, because I knew that Norman Bates was also Mrs. Bates, when they turned the chair around, I thought, that's where we see that reveal. No, we just see a very good, very well done prop dead body that is still decomposing. Yeah. It, though That moment is shocking. and And it plays well because they did it practically and, and the way it's shot with the music mm-hmm. it, it surprises you yeah this movie is a movie of surprises like we could talk about how this was really the first movie where a filmmaker was like no you have to see this movie from the beginning yes because th- you know it's hard for us to think but i've talked to my dad and other people his age like in the 50s and early 60s and, and prior to that, people would go to the movies. They wouldn't look and see what time mm-hmm. a movie is playing. They would just show up, you know, give their quarter or however much it cost and just walk into a movie at whatever part of the film it was in and then maybe stay through to the next showing to catch the beginning. Right. But because this movie, because Psycho has such a twist at the 45-minute mark, Hitchcock didn't want anyone showing up late and if you read through the history at the time a lot of the theaters were really skeptical about this because this was not something that theaters did people showed up and they just sat down mm-hmm. but it worked so well because in the, you know this was playing in not very many theaters lines started to form of people who needed to know what happened this is really one of the first cases of spoilers in movies where people didn't want to get spoiled yeah. so they showed up they bought their ticket. They sat down when the movie was started and they walked out. Even the trailers for this movie didn't really feature footage from the movie, which was more common at the time. Mm-hmm. But it's Hitchcock himself saying this movie has twists. This movie has surprises. You need to come see it from the beginning. Don't tell anyone what happens. Yeah. He was, you know, aside from how great he was and innovative he was as a filmmaker, as a, a marketer, Hitchcock was brilliant. He, he, he captured it. He was like, you know what J.J. Abrams has tried to do mm-hmm. to varying levels of success. I think it really succeeded with something like Cloverfield and then some of his other stuff. He gets t- too far up the puzzle <laughs> box or gets to tell a good story. But He gets you too know, caught up in his blue lens flares, I feel like, sometimes. <laughs> maybe, maybe. You know, but you can draw so many parallels to all the sorts of stuff that goes on in Hollywood to this day. For better or worse, to this movie and the impact. Absolutely, yeah. No, I, I, I told you my when I texted my dad that I was watching Psycho. The first thing he said to me was, "It changed how we went to theaters. We would not have the theater experience we have today, or maybe we would. I don't know, but I say that it does trace back to that whole moment because I, a films are obviously have grown since then, and he's been such a proprietor for the who done it and for thrillers as a whole so because of that and then because of what he how he marketed it and how he let he made people watch it i couldn't even imagine just going to a movie sitting down and just watching it from wherever it starts to going back through i mean it it's so wild to think like before psycho hitch had made rear window Mm -hmm. in north by northwest 
incredible, incredible movies. Imagine showing up halfway through Rear Window and just being like, you know what? I'll find out how this all started yeah. when the reel starts again in half an hour. I can't, I I can't imagine, imagine that. Like, no, there's no way. I, get, I, get, I have a panic attack now if I think I'm going to be late to a movie. Like, I need to be seated before the trailers start so I can, like, assess the situation, get comfortable in my seat. If I'm not already, like, almost done with my popcorn before the trailers start, like, right. I, I exactly. showed up way too late. <laughs> Exactly. It's like, I'm going back for a refill on this right? large. That's exactly what I did. Before the movie starts. <laughs> They're like, oh, you. I'm like, don't judge. Karen, yes, give me my fucking popcorn. It, it, but it really, this, this movie, just from the basic of how we go to the movie theater, it changed the game. Absolutely. Oh, 100%. Um, and then the other thing, so, and it's so funny, you, you mentioned Rear Window. That was actually, and I think I, you know this, but that was my first Hitchcock movie that I ever watched. This is now my second. Okay. Um, okay. And I don't know if like, I feel like part of me is at this point where like, do I feel like maybe I should have reversed it because I knew about Psycho more, but also I still feel like Rear Window was like the best Hitchcock I could have gotten to begin with because it wasn't as in your face horror as most of his, I mean, maybe the birds here and there, mm-hmm. a couple other ones. But for the most part, he really made thrillers and mysteries more than out and out horror movies. Psycho is his horror mm-hmm. movie. Um, so maybe, maybe not starting it with, with it was good because with rear window, you get more of a taste for his formalism. It's a little more classic. It's still a suspenseful, great performance by Jimmy Stewart, great use of, of space and, and those confines and, and, you know, yeah. Uh, I love his use it, of it, of single the single room or like the single location for like a rear window and yeah. then rope rope was my second one so it was rear window rope and then yeah, now this rope, one rope I think rope is another movie where you're like how the can can we curse you oh yeah go ahead explicit rope is one where you watch it and you're like how the fuck did he do this when he did yeah. it like filmmakers now struggle for one shots and you could see the seams a little bit when you watch rope where the the reel is changing because remember at the time they're shooting on 35 millimeter right. each reel has between 13 and 16 minutes approximately that you could film before you have to switch so they would have to move the camera stop it like behind uh, a chair or at a desk change the reel, not move the camera, and then pick it back up to fake it. Rope is a great movie, but as a technical accomplishment, holy oh crap. Oh my God, I know. It even, like it didn't even hit me until like 15 to 20 minutes later where I was like, oh fuck. That was, that was just one shit. Cause I was so enthralled in the story and the dialogue. And I mean, that's Jimmy Stewart on that's any screen. How, that's <laughs> how you know it works, mm-hmm. right? When, when you stop paying attention to the story, on your first viewing, mm-hmm. on your first viewing of something, in my opinion, when you lose the story and the characters and you're focusing too much on the technical aspects or in the case of Rope, the, the gimmick that it's all quote unquote one shot, it failed. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you were so engrossed by the characters in the story and then upon reflection were like, holy shit, they made that look like one shot. That means it worked. And that means... The one shotness, mm-hmm. one shotitude of that movie. <laughs> not throwing away his enha- shot. Right, it's not throwing away his shot. It enha- it enhances right, absolutely the, the story and the characters. It's not there to to you know be like lipstick on a pig. Right. No, it's it's amazing. 
And and same thing with Psycho, yeah. right? Like we talked a little bit about how the content in here at the time was so shocking. Like I don't know how familiar you are with the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code in in cinema predates the MPAA. Okay. It was the sort of rules in the the mid forties through the sixties that movies had to follow in order to be played in the theater and to pass, mm-hmm. you know, whatever sort of arbitrary censorship sex violence cursing etc etc but in the 50s especially towards the late 50s what happened was people started to buy tvs and had tvs Mm. so all of a sudden if people wanted to watch filmed entertainment they didn't have to go to the theater anymore and that's why you started to see films break the Hayes codes and say you know what screw it i'm gonna do what i want and then by the mid 60s late 60s the Hayes code was gone and the mpaa came with pg and then r and then pg-13 came later but this movie said screw the Hayes code i'm gonna do what i want so at the time when psycho was playing in america there had never been a image of a toilet flushing on screen before in movie theaters that's crazy Seeing seeing Janet Lee in her underwear was shocking at the time. Now to see someone in their underwear in a movie, you see that in and in PG modest movies. underwear, she's in a bra and yeah. a slip, like with it's, a little bit not, of midriff. not even like she's wearing a nightgown, right? Or negligee or lingerie. She's wearing a full coverage bra. I, the other thing that I noticed with it when in and talking about the haze code is is during the shower scene. Where you're getting nudity, but not getting nudity. Like you get her stomach, you get the outline of a breast, you get. So there, I'll make the a long story really short. <laughs> the the censors at the time who approved that this movie could play or play theaters or not, some of them said you have to make edits because we see her breast, and then the other half of the censors said no, we don't see her breast. You're crazy. So Hitchcock said I'll edit it. He took the film back. He didn't edit a frame. He replayed it for him. The people who said that they saw the breast the first time now said they didn't. And the people who didn't now said they did. So he said, okay, I will reshoot this scene if you all come to set and help guide me as to what to do. So he had this all set up. None of them showed up. So the movie ended up playing with his original cut just because it's so good at tricking you uh-huh. into thinking you're seeing things that you're not actually seeing with shadow, with light, and with very, very clever camera placement. That's that, that I did not know about this. And, but I remember, but in watching it, I was just like, that had to be, knowing that the time that this movie came out, just having a shower scene had to be something yeah. that was just you didn't do it and we don't get janet lee in her underwear once we get it twice we get my it- my dad was i'm sorry dad i'm revealing your age my dad was 18 <laughs> when this movie came out he was an adult you yeah, know, yeah. 18 years old still a kid but you know and he told me he remembers going to see it after there was some buzz because my dad is not a film guy but he goes to the movies and he remembers the hubbub and the uproar and the conversation and the buzz. And he even said, like, because I was talking to him earlier, he was like, even I, an 18-year-old man, full-blooded American, was sort of, like, taken aback by how lewd it was. But now, you know, you could turn on CSI or Law & Order and see far, far, far worse stuff on nightly network television. But at the time, like, a kid could watch this movie today and be like, this is tame. Context is everything. Like, all of this shit, the violence in the shower scene... The twist ending dealing with disassociative identity mm-hmm. disorder, this is stuff that was not 
shown in movies. No. It just wasn't. You know, maybe in, in some Italian stuff, you know, maybe in some more obscure horror films that played, you know, two theaters and got passed around, but a major American motion picture released by a student? No, just didn't happen. Absolutely not. And, it, I mean, you talk about the two, like, tame compa- now compared to, like, what it would have been back then. I just recently had an episode on Sleepless in Seattle, and we talk about, like, we're talking about kids and things that they're saying. Like, Sleepless in Seattle was a was a PG movie, but there's a scene where uh, little Jonah is talking to Tom Hanks's Sam and makes a comment of, like, if you get a new wife, are you gonna, are you going to have sex with her? And he's like, I sure hope so. And Sam goes, it, does that mean she's going to scratch up your back? So, like, it's <laughs> just the way that things I, have happened and how they've just kind of evolved. And I think it's I, in, incredible. I would almost make the argument that, I'm not talking about violence and horror, but in terms of sexuality, mm-hmm. cinema is now more prude than it was in the 90s. I would say we have almost regressed sexually and become more, pur- more puritanical. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've leaned in more on the violence and the action, which for me, if I ever have kids, I would much rather them see, you know, oh no, that guy got shot than, you know, two people or rather the other way right. around. I would much rather, <laughs> I would much, excuse me. I would much rather frank, honest adult conversations about yeah. sex than, you know, seeing someone get shot and their head exploding with blood. Sure. What do I know? No, I, I agree 100%. Um, yeah, and and even going, going back into it with everything, and th- I need to talk about the smoke show that is Janet Lee <sighs> and her very, sh- her not long enough time on my screen. Well, and that that's the thing, and that's the magic trick of this movie, right? Like... For the first 40 to 45 minutes, Janet Lee is the main character, mm-hmm. right? And by the way, I'm sure you know this, but for any listeners who don't, Janet Lee is Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. Yep. And, and I do, before we're done here, I do want to talk a little bit about Halloween. Of course. Because this, this movie, uh, Halloween and Scream are, to me, a trilogy. Mm-hmm. And I'll explain, I'll explain why a little I bit. I love um, Janet Lee, would, be, can, would you consider her like the first big Scream queen? She was definitely up there, right? So, like, if we look at slasher cinema, this and Peeping Tom both came out in 1960. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, Peeping Tom was a few months earlier. But in terms of this sort of horror cinema, yeah, Janet Lee was maybe the first, like, legit American scream queen. Yeah. And then she goes on to have Jamie Lee Curtis, who helps define a whole new genre. Of, yeah. of scream queens um, and slashers, but but just just imagine, imagine it's 1959 when I assume Hitchcock is in pre-production or trying to get this movie made. Mm-hmm. It's based on a book, a book which is heavily influenced by the real life serial killer Ed Gein. Okay. Right. So so Norman Bates in this movie, not exactly, but the the real life person he most takes from is Ed Gein, horrific guy. Imagine saying, yeah, we're gonna make this movie starring Janet Lee, who's moderately well known. She's the main character and she dies less than halfway through the movie. And then we switch perspectives to the creepy guy running the motel whose motives are questionable. Mm-hmm. How do you sell that? Now you could get away with it. Now you could go to Jason Blum and he'd be like, yeah, here's $3 million. Go make a movie. Right. Kid. But how do you sell killing then? off the person who's supposed to be bringing people into your movie early on right. in the movie? No, that definitely makes sense. 
and and so that that alone is why I love this movie. It pulls the rug out from the audience, but it does it in a way that's dramatically satisfying. It's not a twist. Nothing in this movie is a twist for twist's sake. It's mm-hmm. all elegantly constructed, telling this narrative that continues to build as it reveals more and more information to the audience until the ending, which I have a couple issues with and we can talk about it, but I think the reveal that he was pretending to be his mother with some sort of personality disorder is great Mm -hmm. it bugs me that some of the cops are like oh he's a transvestite yeah okay it's 1960 you have to understand the context of the time but watching it now that one little bit does play i'm like "Uh, i did the same thing i kind of went ooh, you know and i mean and then the psychiatrist like no a man who likes to dress as a woman for sexual pleasure is a and it's like well, now that we know that there's more nuance to this and that there's more, there, there's a there's a lot like other things that play into things and it, you know, gender is fluid Although, and you know, it you, doesn't you, matter. You can't, you can't, you can't necessarily hold a, a work of, of art right. accountable for what was the prevailing psychological understanding at, at the, the time. time. It's the same thing. You know? I mean, I feel like that it, it, to, to you is, to me is seeing Anything nowadays that's taking place in this day and age where people are still throwing the R word around, I'm like, you need to get yeah. better writing. Like, I, I can't period, stand that. Period I hate piece that. or it not, like, crazy. you need to get better writing. Period. End of story. Um, because there's so many other words and insults and things that you can use that's not that word. Um, so I, so I completely get it. And I think, but again, like you said, like looking back at the time that was the terminology that was being used just like if this if if they decided to use the word mentally r word like that's what it right. that was that was the terminology at the time it it's not an excuse but it's an understanding exactly exactly and you know moving forward that you would hope that you know if in this day and age if someone actually if someone made this movie now i mean they kind of did in 98 but i don't think it did as well uh, no <laughs> the, the uh so, yeah, this movie was remade in 1998, directed by Gus Van Sant, who I think is a fascinating filmmaker, starring Anne Heche and Vince Vaughn as Norman Bates. That's just wild and to me. For, for all intents and purposes, it's a shot-for-shot remake. Mm-hmm. The intent of it was to basically go back and recreate every single shot. So for me, as an intellectual exercise, it's fascinating. I have watched it a couple times. I think it's really interesting to study it is not something to be enjoyed. Good. So it's not one. So I don't need to go and compare and contrast because <laughs> I haven't no, seen that one either. You know, <laughs> you know, if we're talking a little bit about Psycho as a franchise, mm-hmm. there are many sequels. Psycho 2, I think, is worth watching, which didn't come until like 83. But what I actually am a huge fan of and recommend is the TV show Bates Motel. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. This aired, this aired um, a couple years ago starring Freddie Highmore and Vera Farmiga. And it's basically a prequel mm-hmm. because Vera Farmiga plays Norman's mom. Um, and it's quite, quite good. Freddie Highmore and Vera are great. But without spoiling too much of the show, it does eventually catch up to Psycho. Mm-hmm. And the events of Psycho do play out in the final season. Okay. But it wouldn't be a Psycho-based property if there weren't... If it didn't at some point, right? If there weren't twists. Right. So once again, I think, and I argue, they successfully pull the rug out from under the audience. And the actress they cast to play the Janet Lee role is Rihanna. Oh, Which is just... Okay. 
snaps for that. Love so that. If you, if you or anyone listening is looking for a, a really good underappreciated TV show and you like Psycho, really, really like Bates Motel. It's a little rough at the beginning, but the acting from the get is good. And it, it's one of those shows where it gets better and better and better. And it nails the ending. Little Freddie Highmore from a, he's a little boy in Finding Neverland who sits there crying on the bench to he is. to Johnny Depp. You know, and now, now he, and then he was Charlie in the remake of Charlie yes. the Chocolate Factory. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, little Freddie Highmore. Now, now he stars on The Good Doctor, but he spent five years playing Norman Bates. Norman Bates. I know. I need, I've been, I've, I need to add that to, to my binge list. 100%. I've only ever heard good things about it. I just never. I didn't want to watch it because I hadn't seen Psycho. And, like, I know you don't need that, but the type of person I am, I feel like I wouldn't – I don't think I would have the appreciation for it as a show if I didn't watch the original movie that it's based off of. I agree with that. I agree. I think think seeing Psycho before watching uh, Bates Motel is the way to go. For sure. Um, And then kind of getting really into Psycho and, and starting to dig into your love of it. What would you say are your top three? It feels weird to say it, but like your your three favorite or I guess standout moments in this film. Okay, so to me, the moment that makes this movie, and everyone's going to say the shower scene, and we've talked about it. The shower mm-hmm. scene is a masterclass in shot composition, in tension, in pulling the rug out for the audience. Legitimately, if you go back and look, people were not using showers at motels. Mm-hmm. For years. And in fact, there is a story. I don't know how true it is, but it feels true that when Spielberg was making Jaws, he said, I want the beaches of America to be as empty as motel showers were after <laughs> Psycho came out. Um, but but to me, the, the highlight of this movie and why I think it's so successful is the scene where Norman is trying to sink the car into the lake. Okay. And it's not working. Mm-hmm. And here I am watching this movie and I've watched it many times. And I'm like, even though now I know the twist, I know that Norman's the bad guy. I know that he has a psychological disorder that makes him think he's his mother and go around killing multiple people. I still kind of want him to get away with this scene. Yeah. Credit to Anthony Perkins' performance for, for being so charming and sympathetic and weird. But it's just this sort of magic trick where you know Norman's weird. Like there's this shot and I've actually used this shot as like header photos for Twitter and Facebook over the years where he's looking through the peephole Mm -hmm. into her room and it's just a close up on his eye and it's so beautifully composed. So, you know, something is off with Norman. He's a creepy guy, but still there's something about this scene by the lake where the car is not sinking and you're like freaking out. I'm like, I need this car to sink. I don't want him to get caught. Mm -hmm. And that to me is partly why this movie is so great because, and I'm not like admitting anything here at all. It's just, it's so interesting that Hitchcock and his team were able to make you feel some sympathy for the killer. And he becomes, he becomes the main character of the second half of the movie. Mm -hmm. Obviously the sister and the boyfriend and, and there's the detective, they all come looking for her. But after Janet Lee dies, the perspective sticks with Norman. Mm -hmm. And that is bold. And I think, too, a lot of what those feelings play into it is how he is the subtle things he does in his affect and his face and his movements after the shower scene when he comes back in. So you think it's his mother and then Norman comes in, sees what his mother has done and you see the shock and the surprise and the desperation 
on his face of like, I, I got to figure this out. We got to, you know, do whatever. So I think, again, giving those those props to Anthony Perkins and how he played that role and how everything was done, it almost puts you into like, because you don't think it's him, right? And then once it all plays out and you see how it all wraps up and it was him, it just makes your your mind boggle and explode even more. I, I put Anthony Perkins uh, on a very small list of greatest performances ever by an actor in a movie. Oh, for sure. It's that end where he's just sitting there staring and he does the smile and it just, it's the creep. That is probably one of the creepiest endings I've ever watched in my life. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Cause you just hear the voice in his head as it's going. Yeah. Incredible. He, he, and, and, you know, he, he's in the sequels. Mm -hmm. Okay. And although none of them are as good, he is always bringing his A game. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I want to say the third one. Oh my goodness. He directed one of the sequels. Oh, really? That's fine. Um, yeah, I don't remember which one, and I, I'm remiss. Um, but yeah, he, he got real. This, you know, this really became his marquee character for his career. I mean, he did other stuff, but really, this is what he's known for. You know, he got an Oscar nomination for Friendly Persuasion a couple years before Psycho, and he's great in that. But really, once Psycho came, his whole career and life changed, and you know, he just became. Yeah, he directed Psycho 3. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was 2 or 3. He directed Psycho 3, which is fine. Um, worth watching mostly because of, you know, his full... Like, again, Norman Bates and Anthony Perkins became synonymous. Right. It's one of those things where a character and an actor were so well matched mm-hmm. that, you know, he got typecast and really... He did other stuff, but you don't ever hear about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm in, like, another... I'm in a group chat, and I had asked them before, prior to recording, if... Um, I need to also watch the remake and do a compare and contrast episode. And everyone is saying no. And a friend of all question mark uh, PLD is in this group chat and decided to let everyone know that psycho two and psycho three are both way better than they should be. Period. Perkins fucks. Mm. The end. I agree. (laughs) I I actually, I often do, but I happen to agree with Paul on this. (laughs) We often disagree, uh, but in this case, for those who know PLD, We'll agree. <laughs> to, to be to be fair, I love long running horror franchises mm-hmm. because invariably, the longer they run, the more crazy they get, and the more swings they take, which can lead to great movies like Jason Lives, mm-hmm. and can lead to, you know, terrible movies like like Jason in Space, you know, <laughs> Psycho and New Beginning. <laughs> It's still like, yeah, it's like, I walked it on my husband watching, um, he had bought like at the beginning of the pandemic, the entire series, they, like Amazon had a sale for like the entire series, uh, Jason of all the Jason movies. And I remember going to the gym and coming home and he had just started Jason 10 where he's in space. And it's the scene where like, he's literally coming out of like being cryogenically frozen or whatever. And he takes that woman's head and sticks it in the frozen the 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 night whatever it is liquid nitrogen and freezes her face and then smashes it and the pieces go everywhere and i was like i'm all done you enjoy this movie i actually <laughs> i think that's one of the best kills in any friday the 13th movie te- te- not a great movie but that scene he said top one of the best deaths ever <laughs> Yeah, it, it's really good. <laughs> what other, what other, so what other two moments with Psycho would you say stand out to you the most? 
Well, the shower scene, which we've talked about mm-hmm. a lot, you know, it's sort of the the scene everyone goes back to with that movie. And then the ending, um, you know, the reveal at the end, you sort of mentioned it when the sister turns around the mother and it's a skeleton. And then you go to the police station and that that shot, it's that shot, mm-hmm. just him staring into the camera, sort of blank, but there's also a cold calculated look to it. And And one of the things about this movie is... Hitchcock mostly shot this with 50 millimeter lenses, not a ton of close-ups, not a lot of zooms, not a lot of pans. He really wanted it to almost be voyeuristic to give it a really fly on the wall approach. And he also uses some first person um, footage. So you feel like you are the character, which was of course recreated in the opening of Halloween and is something that is used a lot in slashers. But that shot of Norman Anthony as Norman at the end, just staring at the camera. It's, it sticks with you. It does. I, I watched it and then tried to go to bed. Ask me how well that worked out for me. It did. How well did that did work not. out? Zero workout. <laughs> was not. I, and I, I think that's a testament to this movie. You know, now in 2022, 60 some odd years later, after release of this movie, you're watching it at home. I don't know if you watched it on TV or a laptop or what, it's still clawing into you and making it hard for you to sleep. It sits, it's literally living rent-free in the back of my head right now, like, as we're talking. Like, I did the face as we're recording this, and I creeped myself out and said, no, thank you. Well, <laughs> you know, and that's the thing. I've talked a lot about how this is one of the grandfathers of slasher cinema. But it's also psychological horror. Right. And that's, that's, I think, part of its impact is beyond just the visceral thrills of one mysterious character going around stabbing people, which is what slasher cinema is. It has this other level that really makes it, I think, stand above and beyond and really stick with Yeah, Like these characters, Norman Bates as a character, what that represents, his motivation, his illness Mm -hmm. is haunting because... Unfortunately, there are many people afflicted with this. Right. It is a very, you know, this is a sensationalized version of it played for thrills and entertainment. And I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, that it's clinically accurate. But at the same time, because it is something that could happen, Mm -hmm. as opposed to something like Friday the 13th, where a, a boy who got bullied at summer camp rises from the water and then, you know as some sort of immortal dude with a hockey mask from movie yeah. three on starts killing people in various locations, eventually space, as we mentioned, you know, or like a, theoretically, a Texas chainsaw massacre where we're making faces out of people that we kill. And <laughs> right. You know, and that sort of stuff does happen, unfortunately to a, to a much smaller, that was also based on Ed Gein. Right. right. Um, a lot of horror movies uh, in the sixties and seventies took inspiration from serial killer Ed Gein. Cause he was Psycho, insane psycho could happen mm-hmm. and and i think the janet lee character um marion crane like who hasn't had the fantasy of like running away from everything with some extra cash to like sort of start a new life and then you you know it's the weather's bad you're not safe driving you decide to pull over on the side of the road on what seems to be just a normal motel mm-hmm. and let's talk about the motel for a second Arguably one of the greatest pieces of production design in cinema history. It is still standing on the Universal lot in Hollywood. That's amazing. 
when you when you go on the tram tour, you drive by it, and it is it has been refurbished and kept right. up, but it has stayed there. And as a little nugget for those of us, for those of you listening who are familiar with the Schmodown, which I'm sure some of you are, I do believe that for a time, one Mr. Mike Kalinowski played Norman Bates on the tour and would chase after the trams coming out of the motel facility. Of course he was. Which was. is really fun. That's a, I love was. it too. He also was in, uh, he he was part of Poseidon's Adventure as another yes, Mike Kalinowski. Yes, he did Indiana Jones at Hollywood Studios in, or at the time it might have been MGM in Florida. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he has been Norman Bates. But the fact that that when you are on that tram tour, that is the original set is incredible. Mm-hmm. And it, it is one of the icons of horror cinema. It's haunting and scary. Just the architecture and construction of the house. And then particularly, there's something about, I know this audio only, there's something about the geography of the placement of the house right. to the rooms where the guests stay. How the house is always in the background, the rooms are in the foreground, that spatial difference and the way depth of field can be mm-hmm. used between the two. It seems so, so far, but you know it's so close. It's kind of disorienting. And it feels like it's just looming over. Like, it, it's ominous. Yeah. It, it's a very ominous The feeling. house is haunting the motel, yeah. almost. It's like leering over it, ready to pounce. Yes. With that, and, and when you see the shots of the mother, that, who you think is the mother, like in shadow in the window, mm-hmm. that shit is scary. Walking back and give, forth. I'm, and that's... And, and I am not... The, go I and now knowing that that's not his mother, that's him in the wig, right. just walking back and forth and pacing is just, it's horrifying when you think about and, it. And I'm not really the type of person that gets scared by movies, right? Yeah, sure. A jump scare will make me, will make, will startle me when it's quiet and then there's a loud noise. I, I am human. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like being afraid, not, it doesn't really happen that much maybe that's why I love horror so much because I can handle it and I'm always looking for something to action. But these, these thoughts and ruminations on the impact of the movie, particularly being able to know the twists and look back, as you said, on what's actually happening is haunting. You're like, holy shit, that's scary. 100%. Oh, absolutely. And I had a thought and now I lost it with talking about all of this. Um, oh, um, going into kind of the other, I feel like the second player in all of this that is just as iconic as the film itself is the score and the soundtrack to it. And it's one of those, I mean, a good slasher movie is only amplified or just a good horror movie is only amplified. I mean, when you think about the classics and what, and masterpieces that come to mind, the score goes hand in hand with it in my book. When you talk about Jaws and that, you know, John Williams score, you talk about Carpenter and Halloween and how that score has become synonymous with it. And I think Psycho, 100% the score that goes along with that entire film and how loud it gets. Cause like, that's your jump scare, right? Is that loud? Like there's other things going on, but that, that's that that score gets so loud and is so haunting and so jarring it's just as infamous and as masterful as the film itself a hundred percent bernard herman who composes score is one of the great composers particularly of cinema i i think his score for vertigo is maybe the greatest score ever composed for a film but psycho is not far behind it um the strings Mm -hmm. the heart and and another 
fascinating for me, at least behind the scenes story is when Hitchcock was first making this movie, his original intention was for the shower scene to be silent, no score, just to let the sound of the knife and the screams have the impact, which on paper is not a terrible idea. We've seen movies where Mm -hmm. by cutting the score, it has more impact. And in test screenings, the scene was not having the impact Hitchcock hoped. Supposedly, Herman wrote music for it on his own accord as he's scoring the movie. When they put those hard strings over the scene hitchcock was like whatever we're paying herman double it because holy crap that that it makes it makes the scene it makes the movie it gives me so much anxiety like you're already watching it you know what's happening you you're you're terrified from for this woman getting murdered in the shower and then you have that heart that just those strings and how it's going you're just like oh my god well, even aside from the strings, like in the beginning when he's dri- when she's driving and it's like it's it's getting its hooks into you and it's ratcheting up the tension. I always like to joke that I am a score whore. <laughs> like other than the film itself, my favorite element in a movie is a great Me score. Me too. And this is a great score. I you know it's not necessarily one I listen to often for pleasure because it's scary. Right. And kind of dissonant and not joyful to listen to, but gosh, it's so freaking good. And it's iconic. You play those strings. You know what you're hearing. You know, most people would in in some part of their brain be able to identify. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I love a good score. Like I, and again, it's not a score that I, I don't have to listen to it every day for it to be a good score. You know, like we're not talking John Williams' Duel of the Fate, which sounds beautiful and I can listen to on my drive home, or James Horner and his Rocketeer score, which is one of my favorite opening uh, uh, scores of all time or themes of all time. It's the Rocketeer theme. I think it's beautiful. If I need a good cry, sometimes I just put it on and cry to it in my own little corner, in my own little chair. So (laughs) it's like, it's what I do. But a good score can really make or break a movie, especially when you have a movie, I feel like, like Psycho, where there is action, but there's only two scenes of people getting killed, right? Everything else is going on psychologically and it's suspense and it's literally being on that edge of your seat. I wouldn't have been on the edge of my seat watching Janet Lee drive down a road, not really being able to see with the rain without that score. You know, sometimes people will say like, oh, the the score is like so, manip- not for this movie necessarily, but in general, the score is so manipulative, it's telling you what to feel. That's the point. Mm-hmm. When you strip a score away from the movie, you're oftentimes left with an incomplete product. Why I think cinema is the greatest art form is it encompasses every possible type of art form. You have music, you have performance, you have painterly imagery when you take a film down to its stilts. Right. So I agree. The score. Well, before I start wrapping up and getting my letterbox score, I need to hear why Psycho, Halloween, and Scream are the perfect trilogy. Oh, I'm so glad because this is what I wanted to talk about next. Okay. So I would argue, and I think many would agree or disagree, I don't know, that each film represents a major turning point in horror and particularly slasher cinema. I mentioned Peeping Tom and I don't want to ignore the impact of Peeping Tom, but in terms of lasting impact and cultural impression, Psycho 
is more popular and beloved than Peeping Tom. Peeping Tom is good. Watch it. But this is really the first major successful American slasher movie. We talked about how it changed the game, the Hays Code, all this. Mm -hmm. If you go to Halloween in the 70s, there are so many things in common. Jamie Lee Curtis is the lead. Janet Lee is her mother. We open with the scene shot partly in first person, which is a style that was used in Psycho. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it also, on top of just being a slasher, has elements of psychological thriller because it tries to give you an insight into Michael Myers through the character of the doctor. What is the doctor's name? Dr. Loomis. Mm -hmm. What is the boyfriend's name in Psycho? Sam Loomis. Oh, see, I didn't even think about okay? that. Now let's cut to Scream in 1996. Slasher movies have been around for many years. Kevin Williamson, who wrote Scream, and Wes Craven, who directed it, said, you know what? We are going to make a movie that functions as a slasher, but also lampoons the tropes of the genre, not to the point that it's a parody, but that it's witty and has its tongue in its cheek. Skeet Ulrich plays Nev Campbell's boyfriend in that movie. What is his name? Billy Loomis. So here you have three okay. movies that I think represent the three major turning points in American slasher cinema. You go from the progenitor to the one that set the, the scene alongside a couple others like Texas Chainsaw on Friday the 13th for the heyday of slashers in the 70s. And then in the mid 90s, when this genre has been around for so long, these guys are like, let's turn it on its head. Let's make it fresh and new. But all three use similar thematic elements and the name Loomis, that's all by design. It's not a mistake that these three movies have prominent characters with the last name Loomis. There, they are as a spiritual and a thematic through line between the three. And in terms of cinema history, these three movies, I think at the time they came out, are perfect representations for horror, particularly slasher cinema in the 60s, 70s, and 90s. That's amazing. Incredible. And with yeah. all of that, um, Maxwell, you are my third guest to pick a movie that gets the full five stars. Ooh, I don't write I don't that. write whole reviews or anything. I just give them stars and I move on. But I don't I don't know how you can watch this movie and not give it five stars. There's just no way. There's no way. It it's it's impeccable. It is from start to finish. You know, we, it, it doesn't miss a beat. It's amazing, and it's one of those two where like. We talked about in in at after the murder in the shower. If you blink, you miss little subtleties. Like you have to be watching. But Hitchcock does such a good job of making you want to watch and making you want to sit on the edge of your seat and and pay close attention and not look at a thing else. Yeah, it's you know there you know people always to me the sure sign of a great movie barring a few ex exceptions where you know the content is so depressing you can't watch it if this movie is on tv i'm gonna stop everything i'm doing and watch it yeah you cannot look away nope. doesn't matter how many times i've seen it doesn't matter like i could be having you know a life-changing argument with someone and psychos on the tv i'm sitting down i'm like we're gonna finish this discussion after psych perfect exactly we will we will talk when this is over <laughs> The psycho, the psycho, the psycho rule. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just want to mention one, one thing. Yeah. If, if anyone listening or you, you know, are really interested in this movie, 
there's a book um, that I love called The Moment of Psycho, How Alfred Hitchcock Taught America to Love Murder by David Thompson. Okay. There's a lot of books about Hitchcock. There's more than one book about the making of Psycho. This one to me is the best. It has the most interesting perspective. And if you want to do, if you want to be a real movie nerd and do more reading about this movie, that is my recommendation for, for the book. I've read it a couple of times. Love it. I'm on it. Well, Maxwell, thank you so much for coming and hanging out with me. Um, Before we get out of here, where can people find you? What you got going on? Uh, Yeah, you could find me on the old Twitter at Cinemaxwell. Uh, You could find me uh, with my partner in crime, Amber Coates, over at Ember Productions. That's Ember Products, P-R-O-D-U-X on Twitter. Uh, We have a YouTube channel where we do movie reviews, TV recaps, and we're going to be having some theme park and Broadway content coming up. We're having a lot of fun over there. Check it out uh, if you haven't yet. Uh, We're just really getting started. We have big plans and we're not we're not slowing down anytime soon. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for you guys with with your Ember. If you guys haven't been able to tell, Maxwell is the M in Ember. And if all of you listening are enjoying what you're hearing, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review to Flick and Reel on whatever audio platform you're listening to us on. If you're listening on YouTube, please make sure to comment, subscribe, and like, and let me know your thoughts on Psycho and any of the other films that we've covered previously. And make sure you're hitting that little bell for the notifications so anytime we drop any new content. You can follow the show on Twitter at NeverSeenItFNR, and you can follow me at Allison Salamone. And until next time, my friends, let's all be safe and let's go watch some movies. Bye.